Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how newborn mammals dream about the world before they enter it. Then, you'll learn about the stunning amount of work it takes to prepare fossils for research with help from author Caitlin Wiley. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Baby mice are able to move around and take in what they see as they open their eyes for the first time. But how? It turns out that newborn mice have a special kind of dream. And it helps them jump straight into life as soon as their baby mouse eyes open up for the first time. Human babies don't do all that much during their first day. Or, you know, year. But most mammals don't have that luxury. Baby giraffes have to be up and running just an hour after they're born. Researchers have been puzzled by this ability. How do babies manage to understand what they're seeing when they've hardly ever seen anything? The researchers behind this discovery started by using imaging technology to watch the brains of newborn mice that hadn't opened their eyes yet. What they saw was spectacular. It turns out that there is a ton of activity happening in their little baby brains. Some of that activity starts near the retina and flows into other parts of the brain. That's a little counterintuitive because retinas detect light, and the retinas belonging to these baby mice hadn't ever been exposed to light before. The researchers said the specific patterns they saw looked a lot like the brain activity that happens when a mouse is moving forward through its environment. The finding led the researchers to think the mice are doing something very similar to dreaming. And those dreams are of something they've never experienced before. It probably helps the baby mice get ready for what life is about to turn into. After all, there are a lot of predators that would love nothing more than a baby mouse that can't really see or run away. Of course, this was just a hunch. Those brain waves might not actually help the mice survive at all. That's why the researchers didn't stop there. They decided to see what would happen if these brain waves were disrupted. They used drugs to block two different kinds of cells in the retinas of some baby mice. Neural imaging revealed that these mice didn't have the same brain waves as normal mice. And sure enough, once they opened their eyes, they weren't nearly as good at detecting motion or responding to threats. So, do human babies do this too? The answer might be yes. The researchers note that human babies can detect objects and motion immediately after birth, which suggests that their visual systems are also being primed before they see the world. This really puts dreaming about the future in a whole new light. Seeing a dinosaur skeleton towering over you in a museum is a pretty breathtaking sight. But have you ever wondered how the bones get to that point? Because as today's guest will tell you, that dino did not come out of the ground looking that way. Taking a fossil from excavation to exhibition is a long, laborious, and surprisingly creative process. Caitlin Wiley is an assistant professor of science, technology, and society at the University of Virginia, and author of the new book, Preparing Dinosaurs, The Work Behind the Scenes. Here's what she said when we asked her what a fossil preparator even is. A fossil preparator is a person who makes a fossil ready to be studied. And so in that sentence, you can imagine there's already a million kinds of work that goes into making a fossil researchable. And a fossil preparator doesn't have a particular credential, doesn't have specific training, 
They come from a wide variety of backgrounds, including science and art. And in brief, they remove the rock around fossils, which is very meticulous and challenging and takes a lot of expert judgment to decide what is fossil and what is rock. They're experts at using tools, so designing different kinds of devices to remove rock in different ways. So, for example, they adapt sort of rock engravers, so little pneumatic jackhammers that kind of look like a pencil, but they buzz, and they're like a million kinds of them that preparators have designed specifically for use on different hardnesses of rock. They do not generally identify as scientists. In my book, I call them technicians which is sort of their institutional title. But yeah, they identify themselves as fossil preparators. Yeah, I think I always imagined that it was just scientists doing this. So that's news to me. So I'm guessing that the dinosaur skeletons that we see in museums don't actually look like that when we dig them up. So what <laughs> what exactly do we start with? Uh, that's a great question. So you know that scene in Jurassic Park where they have like a complete gorgeous skeleton lying in the sand and the paleontologists are like dusting it with a paintbrush and no that's not real <laughs> um it's lovely and and you know aspirational but no dinosaurs are almost never so beautifully laid out they're never complete and so i, I guess i want to tell you about the sort of stages of how we go from prehistoric life in nature to these gorgeous skeletons that we see in museums that look so complete and alive and beautiful so first to be studied, right, this idea of being researchable, we have to be able to see a fossil. And so that seems kind of obvious. But if you think about how many layers, right, millions of years of layers of rock that lie on top of fossils, like first the fossil has to sort of make it to the surface and erode out and be found. So already think about the levels of probability involved in someone actually finding a fossil, recognizing it as a fossil. And then we get to the second aspect of getting it out of the rock. And so you've probably seen lots of images of paleontological fieldwork and how physical and laborious that is. And there are these huge teams of people. Some of them are scientists, but most of them are students or technicians or volunteers. And so in my book, I look at like the second stage of making a fossil researchable, which is once you get the fossil from the field to the lab, which is in itself like an epic journey, what happens then? And so when preparators open up a field jacket. So like, you know, think of a, you broke your arm and they wrap your arm in plaster to hold it in place. Like that's exactly what they do to fossils in the field. They wrap it up in plaster as a shipping container, basically. And then in the lab, the preparators remove the rest of the rock around it. So they bring home this like boulder that has, you know, one bone in it. And then the preparator in the lab does the meticulous work of removing that extra rock so that bone becomes fully visible and, you know, touchable so that scientists can compare it with other bones and take measurements and sort of convert that prepared specimen into data that then become the basis of scientific papers. Wow, that's a lot of steps. Then once we actually know that they're bones and we can kind of take them apart from the rock, how do we know what bones go where? Oh, yeah, that's a really hard one. So even the decision of what is bone and what is rock is a judgment call. So it, it's not like Jurassic Park where the bones are like, if you remember that scene, the bones are really dark in color and then the sand on top is like sand colored. And so it's really obvious what's bone and what's not. Most often the fossils and it's called the matrix. So the rock that the fossils are sitting in are the same, like they're the same. 
And so there are these minute differences that preparators and paleontologists can identify based on texture or hardness or sometimes color, but not always. I worked as a fossil preparator, and so I can mostly see where the fossil is. But not always. I can still look in a, a jacket that a preparator is working in, a, a field jacket, and be like, where's the bone? I mean, the bone turns into rock, right? Right. So how do we know the difference? Exactly. A fossil is a rock. <laughs> like it's a fossilized, you know, it's a, a mineralized rock. So the, basically the, the parts of the bone have become replaced by minerals over millennia. Um, and then deciding which of that rock represents an animal versus representing just rock is the decision of the preparator. And that's epic if you think about it. We don't have anything more high tech than just the human eye to determine the difference. Uh, We do use CT scanning. However, I wrote a whole paper about this because fossil preparators are very dismissive of CT scanning, which makes sense because they rely on their expertise. But there are real technical limitations with CT scanning, mostly with regards to the fact that In order to distinguish fossil from rock, a CT scanner has to distinguish densities. Like a CT scanner measures the density of material. And so if the bone and the rock are the same density, then the CT scanner just gives you a bunch of nothing because it looks the same. And if they are different densities, CT scanners can be amazing. And there are fabulous images of fossils that are still embedded in the rock. Like all you can see on the outside is a boulder. And then we have these images, these slices through the boulder that show us where the bones are. So yeah, CT scanning is really cool, but I wrote a whole paper about how scientists and preparators say the CT images are never enough. You really have to see the the real thing to be able to make a judgment about, you know, how you're going to interpret that bone. Well, sounds like the human eye still has a few things going for it. Anyway, that was Caitlin Wiley, Assistant Professor of Science, Technology and Society at the University of Virginia and author of the new book, Preparing Dinosaurs, the work behind the scenes. You can find a link to check out this open access book for free in the show notes. Caitlin will be back tomorrow to talk about just how accurate fossil preparators have to be and what happens if they mess up. All right, well, let's do a quick recap of what we learned today. Well, we learned that newborn mammals seem to dream about the world they're about to experience before they opened their eyes. Researchers scanned the brains of newborn mice before they had opened their eyes, and they found brain activity that's similar to what happens when an adult mouse is moving through its environment. When the researchers blocked these signals in some newborn mice, those mice weren't as good at detecting motion or responding to threats once they opened their eyes. This visual priming might also be happening to human babies, since they're also able to detect objects and motion when they're born. I love that idea. Just like a baby in the womb is dreaming about the world outside. Isn't that just like poetic and beautiful? Oh, I love it. It's rad. It's very rad. It's yeah, I like it. Specifically, it is rad. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And we learned that a lot of work goes into preparing fossils for research. Fossil preparators are people who use various tools to remove rock from around fossils. They're not scientists, but they are experts in figuring out the difference between bone and rock once fossils are found in the field and moved into a lab. Most of the time, the difference between fossil and rock is a judgment call that takes a lot of experience and expertise to get right. Yeah, and fossil preparators do use CT scanning, 
but there are some technical limitations to that. The scanners measure the density of rock, but that's not super helpful when a rock and a fossil are the same density. So if it sounds like that means this is a hard job, then you are correct. And you'll definitely want to come back tomorrow to learn more about this fascinating job. Yes. I was so excited to not only do this interview, but share it on the show. I just I didn't know any of this. And I think a lot of people don't know any of this. That's why she wrote the book. It's it's actually very rare knowledge. And it's just so cool to just think about that. Like the bones that you see in a museum, they weren't just taken out of a rock and put up there. They were just there's like so much more that goes into it that I didn't even know about. I'm just like amazed. I'm I just feel I am in awe of of that right now. And like, honestly, you're probably not going to hear about this on a ton of other podcasts. We kind of got the scoop on this. So if you have friends that like science podcasts or educational podcasts, I mean, first of all, you should have told them about our show anyway already. But if you haven't, now is a pretty good opportunity because like, yeah, we're shining a light on a thing that really doesn't get a lot of attention and is so important. Yeah. Like the fossil preparators aren't like credited in scientific publications. They're not technically researchers in the same way that other researchers are kind of treated. So it's a very interesting thing that's just very, very important. The writer for today's first story was Grant Curran. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow as we separate science from the rock to help you learn something new in just a few minutes. Cody, I think you combine science with the rock, if, with all your wrestling puns. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You basically just told me to know your role. <laughs> it's good. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.